Okay, so welcome guys. Thanks for joining. Um, today we're going through the book of Acts, right? So um, we've done the gospel so far. We've done Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And uh, whilst Acts is not a, a gospel, it kind of fits in with that. You know, it shows us what happens um, straight after the gospels. And uh, it, it's kind of grouped together with the gospels as part of church history, right? So if you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Acts. Um, that's where we're going to be spending our time this evening. Um, as usual, if you guys have any questions, any thoughts, anything you'd like to share, please feel free to, to stop me. Uh, if you have any opinions, any disagreements, uh, feel free to just, you know, you don't have to put your hand up or anything, just shout. Or even put it in the comments, on the at least on my screen, I see the comments on the side. So, um, yeah, let's get started, right? Let's go to the book of Acts. And starting off, I want to emphasize the genre of the book. The genre of the book you're reading is very important for every part of scripture. But in our day and age, it is even more important for the book of Acts. If we get the genre of the book wrong, we will end up with the wrong interpretation. So if you read a narrative book in a didactic or teaching way, then you will end up with the wrong interpretation and you will have a lot of inconsistencies and contradictions. So what type of genre is the book of Acts? It is narrative. It's a historical narrative. So it's telling us a story. It is not didactic, right? It is not an epistle. The epistles are teaching material for the most part. The book of Acts and the misinterpretations in it is responsible for some really, really bad teachings. Some worse than others, but we will get to some of those and, and hopefully by the end of the session, uh, we'll have a better understanding of it and we'll be able to discuss it. So have you heard of uh, the second baptism, right? The second baptism is the idea that you can be saved, but you need to have a second experience, a second baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that is argued from the book of Acts. And what goes hand in hand with that is speaking in tongues. That is normally seen as the evidence. How do you know you have a second baptism? Well, you speak in tongues. Again, Acts is used to justify this, right? Um, another one, another bad teaching that is argued from Acts has to do with church ecclesiology. So church ecclesiology is, is it, it has to do with church structure, right? Um, and why is church structure so important? So I'll even put the definition over here so you can see what ecclesiology means, right? Um, there's three types of church structures, right? So you've heard of maybe Presbyterianism. You might have even heard of Episcopalianism, right? There's always these big words being used. So there's three main types of church structure that you see today in, in this day and age. The first one is Episcopalianism. So... Here, there's a guy at the top, right, and he's called a pope or a bishop or an apostle. He's in charge of all the churches underneath. He has the final say. He is the authority. So Roman Catholics and Anglicans and the Church of England are examples of this. You get bishops and archbishops, and that's normally in Catholicism and Anglicanism. In charismatic movements, you'll find an apostle. Right? There will be an apostle in charge of many churches. And again, he is the authority. Now, for Episcopalianism, there's no biblical basis for such a church structure. Right? You can't argue for it from scripture. Even the Charismatics and Anglicans and Catholics, they will most likely agree with you. They will say, it isn't in scripture, but it's pragmatic. We do it because it's a pragmatic thing. Right? And this church structure has evolved into existence over time. The second one is called Presbyterianism. Um, and this second structure tries to be more biblical. And it came about at the Reformation. And they came about and said, this is wrong. We can't have one guy in charge of all the churches. What we do is, what we'll do is we will have all these local churches. And in the churches, we will have elders, right? Um, and then we get, we take elders from each of those churches and we form a body, we form an executive and um, they run the churches, right? Um, and they argue for this church structure from Acts chapter 15. This is where they get it from. 
and we look at that chapter when we get there. But I think they get it wrong, right? They they find they 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 hold to that teaching because, like I said, this is a narrative book, so it is descriptive, right? It is not telling us what we should do. So we we'll look at the chapter, and I'll show you why I think it doesn't support what they're doing. The third type of church structure is called congregationalism or Baptist, right? So at church, at our church, at Heritage, we are a congregational or Baptist church. So if you think I'm biased towards this church structure, you are right, right? But I see this as the biblically prescribed model or church or structure of the church. This says there is, this structure says there is the local church and there are elders who lead and rule the local church. But the local church is autonomous, right? It stands on its own. So no outside body can come and tell the local church what it can and cannot do, be it the government or even if it's another church. Right? Not even the Pope or the Bishop can tell the local church what to do. When it comes to church matters, the church is independent. However, the teaching of Scripture is that local churches should be in fraternity with other local churches. So it's not saying that we should be, you know, um, lone rangers, we should be like a cult, just be on our own. It's not heritage against the world, right? We should have relationships with other local churches, but ultimately the local church is autonomous. And while the elders lead and rule, they are not dictators because even some of the Paul that that Paul, some of the letters that Paul writes, he writes to the congregation, right? He instructs the congregation on what to do. He tells them to get rid of those leaders because they are false teachers. So we see that as the biblical model. In the other two church models, any average Joe can take rule in those other models, right? It doesn't really matter. Whereas in Scripture, if you see false teaching then you as a member of a church are responsible to do something about it, right? Each person is responsible in the local body. Of course, the leaders are more responsible, but you also have a part to play. So congregational churches are normally Baptistic churches and Baptistic churches are always congregational, right? So remember, the genre of the book is narrative and narrative is descriptive, not prescriptive. In the Gospels, we see Jesus washing the disciples' feet. We do not take that as we should now all go around washing others pe other people's feet, right? That would be awkward. It's describing something that happened, not telling us what must happen. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the Old Testament, the writers of Samuel or Judges or Chronicles, they don't stick their nose in the story, right? They don't say, look, what David did with Bathsheba was wrong and you should not do it. They don't tell us that. Right? They just tell us what happened. They may use sophisticated language and literary devices to tell you what happened was not good, but you, had to, you have to read carefully to see that. And so it's the same with the book of Acts. I think there are a lot of things that happen in the book of Acts that are not good at all. But because they are recorded, most Christians think they are good. Like when Paul goes out and he, uh, he casts a demon out of a lady who was annoying him. I think what he did there was wrong. You know, why did he wait days before casting the demon? Or when they cast lots for Matthias in chapter 1, I think what they did there was wrong. I don't believe uh, Matthias is the 12th apostle. Who is the 12th apostle? It is Paul. And when we get to the book of Revelation, uh, the and the foundation of the church being the 12th, it has to be Paul. So they were missing a guy to make it 12th, and they cast lots to decide who, who it should be. But the reason why they cost lots is because that's what they know, right? You never hear of Matthias again in Acts, but you hear of Paul, and he becomes bigger and bigger in the story until it's just him underneath Christ and the Holy Spirit. So all of this to say and to encourage you to read carefully when you read Acts or any part of Scripture that is narrative, right? Don't read the narrative and say, okay, this happened there, therefore we must do this. So if you go to chapter 1, in chapter 1, Luke writes, verse 1, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up after he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And then Jesus tells the, the, the apostles to go to Jerusalem, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So verse 8 is paradigmatic for the whole book of Acts. It gives us a picture it gives us a picture of an expanding circle. This expanding circle is the kingdom of God. The apostles are to go out from Jerusalem to Judea, then Samaria, and eventually the whole world. The book of Acts follows this pattern, right? The spread of the gospel of the kingdom out from Jerusalem into these different areas. Another way to look at it is it begins, the gospel begins in the Jewish capital of Jerusalem and it ends up in the Gentile capital of Rome, right? The, cap the, the Gentile capital of the world at the time. So even though this book is called the Acts of the Apostles, a better and more accurate name is the Acts of the Risen Christ through the Holy Spirit, because it is God who is at work here. Christ is at work through his Holy Spirit. In chapter 2, if you turn to chapter 2, the apostles are in the upper room and the Holy Spirit comes upon them. There is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit and they begin to speak in languages. They speak in tongues. The word tongues in the Greek is literally a tongue, right? But it's referring to languages. The, the Greek word used here is glossolalia. Um, and it's unfortunate, it's really unfortunate that words are very powerful. And if you get an association with a word, it becomes very difficult to remove that association, right? In fact, if scripture had just said languages, right? If we just spoke about languages, I don't think there would be as much gibberish going on there wouldn't be so much confusion about this topic but because it's called tongues people take it as defining something else the original meaning of tongues is it's a language even today when we refer to your mother tongue you are referring to a language and so that is what's happening here in acts they are speaking in different languages but verse 5 says now they were dwelling in in jerusalem jews devout men from every nation under heaven and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all, those, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? And then it lists the people from the different nations hearing their own language in verse 9. Verse 9 says, it's people from the Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia. Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own language, in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. So you can see they are speaking in actual languages. It is not it is not gibberish, and I'm going to call it gibberish now because I don't know a better name for it. But each person is hearing in their own native language the mighty works of God. And if you could map all the areas being listed in verse 9, right? It's basically all of the known world at the time, right? It's everyone from every part of the world. In this chapter, these Jews who came for the Feast of Pentecost come from all over the world and are hearing these 120 men speak their language. And these are all Gal Galileans. Right, who are speaking in languages. How are they able to do that? It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And this is important. If you say, I'm going to stick with the Bible, then it must be a language. Then you sweep the rest of these teachings away. It was a language and you cannot deny it here. And there is nowhere in scripture where it says that it changes from Acts to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Right? That's what's called an argument from silence. We have no reason, we have no evidence to believe that. Why would it be two different things? We do not have a text saying that the, the tongues referred to in Acts are languages, but the tongues referred to in Corinthians is another kind of tongues, right? A kind that doesn't make sense to the human mind. We don't have that. Now, there are 120 people speaking in tongues early in the morning. There is a lot of commotion going on. That is why people are saying that they're drunk. Look at verse 13. But others mocking said they are filled with new wine. The text is not saying they were acting crazy and people were collapsing and falling over so they must be drunk. Because they are speaking and they are making sense. Right? Then Peter gets up. Peter gets up and he starts to preach. And he preaches from the book of Joel in the Old Testament. Peter says, 
what is happening right now is a cosmic event in the history of the world, right? It is like the moon being turned to blood. The event being the Holy Spirit being poured out on all flesh. It is a unique time in history. The book of Revelation describes the second coming of Christ also in cosmic terms because it will be an epochal major event, right? It's like it's a, it's a huge event in, 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 uh, in redemptive history. Same thing is going on here in Acts. Pentecost is a huge event in redemptive history. It is the entrance into the new covenant. And he goes on, and so go, uh, Peter goes on to talk about Christ. Verse 22, he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. The people ask, what must they do to be saved? And he tells them to repent and to be baptized. And then we're told in verse 41 that 3,000 souls were saved. So there are many important things in Pentecost uh, going on. You have all of these nations being mentioned and they are coming together. And they are all understanding. They are getting the same, me the same message. Even though they, are, they all speak different languages. What does this remind us of? Or what is, what is the opposite of that that we see in the Old Testament? I think it should bring to mind uh, the Tower of Babel. Right? Remember at the Tower of Babel, God scattered all of humanity. He brought languages. Uh, he introduced languages, basically confusing uh, uh, people, confusing the languages so that they would scatter. So whenever there's judgment, whenever there's God's judgment, there is a scattering. But wherever there's salvation and redemption, there is a gathering. There's a coming together. That is why the church gathering on the Lord's Day is a picture of mercy and grace to the world. Right? That is one thing that's going on. The other thing that is going on is it's really the beginning of the new covenant period. Right? Christ coming, uh, the, the inauguration of the Lord's Supper, and the high point right now is the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It was what was promised in books like Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other passages in the Old Testament. They are entering into the full experience of the new covenant and what it means to be a new covenant believer. When the old covenant was inaugurated in Exodus, Mount Sinai, Moses goes up to get the law. And what happens when he's up there? What do the people do? They start to worship the golden calf, right? Moses comes down, he's angry. He calls the Levites and, and that is why the, the Levites become so important. They are the ones who are prepared to take a stand for God. And they go amongst the people and anyone who wasn't prepared to repent of the idolatry, they killed. And how many were killed that day? It was 3,000. So it's a beautiful image. In the beginning of the old covenant, 3,000 people die. At the beginning of the new covenant, 3,000 people live. Eternal life. This is not saying that the old covenant was evil and bad. The Bible is clear that the law is good, right? The problem is it cannot save you. The Lord teaches us how to love God and how to love neighbor. It is good when used rightly. But if you use it to try and obtain salvation, then the law will damn you. It will condemn you. You and I will try to be a good person, but it will crush us. Right. So at the beginning of the new covenant, there is life. Salvation for 3,000 people. And if you look at verse 42, what do these people do? And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. So when you read narrative, right? Like I said, it is not prescriptive. It is descriptive. But how can you take prescriptive elements from it? The, the answer is simple. We have the apostles doctrine. We have the epistles. We have all these letters written by Paul, Peter, James, John. If we don't find the teaching there, then it is not prescriptive. So you won't find in the epistles that you should sell everything you have and give it to the church. But that's what they did in Acts, right? And yet we don't find the apostles um, doing that. We don't find them teaching that in the epistles. What we do find in the epistles is the command to be under the preaching and teaching of God's word. And to not neglect the gathering of the saints, to be part of a church community. And then we do see that in Acts, right? 
here in verse 42, the gathering of the saints under God's word. So that it is so that so that is preaching and teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and it's prayer, right? Both private and corporate praying together. So go to chapter three. Uh, in chapter three, Peter heals a lame man. Yeah. Okay, um, so I'll get to that. I'll get to that because um, it's not only Acts chapter 2, it's also chapter 8, chapter 9, no, no, yeah, 8, 10, and 19 that they use. So I'll go through each of those verses and, I, and then I'll, I'll get to that point as well. Okay, all right, cool, cool. So I'll, um, I'll circle back to all those. It's, it's basically like part of the whole doctrine of the second baptism. So um, we'll look at that, we'll look at that. Um, Okay, so I'm just going to go to chapter 3, right? Chapter 3, Peter heals a lame man. If you, if, you, if you go read Acts from start to finish, in chapters 1 to 12, Peter is eminent. He's the main figure, right? It's, it's like he's the, he's the in a, if, if you're using movie terms, he's the main character. And then from then on, from like chapter 13, it's Paul, right? Peter sort of fades into the background. It's interesting that you will have Peter here healing a lame man, raising someone from the dead. And then later you will have Paul healing the lame and raising them from the dead. It's an authentication of Paul as an apostle, which is also important, right? Peter is an, apo is an apostle and so is Paul. And so here in this chapter, you see them, they begin to travel. And then we get to chapter five and there's the story of uh, Ananias and his wife, Sapphira. So... Have you heard people, um, like like uh, uh, Latiba was mentioning, you've heard, okay, maybe you haven't heard this, but people, have you heard people pray, um, Lord, please start killing people in our church that lie to you, right? Probably not. And yet it is described here in Acts. Why do they pray for the one and not the other, right? Because they pray for a, a, second, a, a second baptism, like Pentecost, Churches have prayed for a second baptism. Uh, individuals have prayed it for themselves. It's common and um, they get it from Acts. But they do that for the one thing and we don't do it for the other thing. It's an inconsistency. And I remember, I remember, I think it was Mike and I, we were talking about this book and he said he wouldn't have liked to live in this time period because can you see what's going on? If you notice, it is a transitional period. It is a unique period and it can never be repeated again. There is one Pentecost. You cannot have another and there will never be another. So in a sense, it's a very volatile period. And the book of Acts is dealing with the transitional period from the old covenant to the new covenant. And it's a radical shift. You can eat unclean animals now. You don't have to go to the temple anymore. It's huge, especially if you're a Jewish person. That is why it's so radical and so many hectic things are happening here. So not many people are praying for what happened to Ananias and his wife and they shouldn't, right? It is describing what happened. If you know the story, you know that the issue is not that they didn't sell all their land or they didn't give all their money to the church. The issue is that they lied about it, right? They said that they did. They said, we gave all of our money to the church and they both lie. So again, right at the beginning of the new covenant, we have two people die. At the beginning of the old covenant, did we have two people, people die? Does anyone know? Can anyone think of two people? I'm going to give it just five seconds to see if anyone can maybe put it in the comments or say out loud. Okay, it's not a trick question. The answer is yes. Two people died at the inauguration of the Old Covenant. It's Nadab and Abihu or Abihu. They're the ones who at the beginning of sacrifices, when sacrifices were started, they took, what, uh, they took strange fire and they are put to death. 
So praise the Lord that in the new covenant, 3,000 people are saved, but don't make the mistake of thinking that now we can do what we like. It is all fun and games, right? Take the example of Ananias and his wife. In fact, in the new covenant, the punishment is way more severe. The warning is clear in the book of Hebrews. We have more light. And so the judgment for those who die in the new covenant is far worse. Right? We have more light. We have more understanding. We have the Holy Spirit. The writer of Hebrews will say, if somebody picks up, picked up stones on the Sabbath and they were put to death, how much, how much worse punishment the person is worthy of who tramples underfoot the blood of Christ, right? Don't confuse the new covenant, the covenant of grace as a license to sin. And when we get to, when we get to Peter, we will see that the Old Testament is about mercy and the grace that is coming. That is what it's all about. The New Testament is all about the judgment that is coming. So it's actually contrary to what people think. People think Old Testament is just about judgment and New is about mercy. The Old Testament is saying, there is mercy and grace and salvation coming, right? You get to the New Testament and it says what? There is judgment coming. So if we go to chapter 6, then we have, we get to a big problem in the early church. And it's a problem that threatens to destroy the early church. There are these Jewish widows and there are uh, Jewish widows who have been Hellenized, right? So there's Jewish widows, then there's Hellenized Jews. So the Hellenized ones are the Greek-speaking Jews who hold to Greek culture. The early church was looking after these ladies because they're widows. They cannot work for themselves. They cannot uh, financially support themselves. Originally, in Judaism, the temple system with the priests and, and all of that was designed to look after widows and the orphans. And they did. The Jews, they, the Jews did that to some degree or another. But there was corruption that came in and um, you know, kind of messed that up. Uh, but even today, in Jewish communities, they look after those who can't do it themselves. So when the Jewish widows, they, when they become Christian, they start getting kicked out of the synagogues and out of their Jewish community. And so there's the question, is the church going to pick up that role? And the answer is yes, the church looks after the widows and the orphans. But the Jewish widows are being favored above the, the Greek ones because they are Jews. So there's racism that's going on. The Greek widows are upset and you can see how this can explode, can cause huge division and destroy the early church. The apostles then get together and say, let us get some men full of the Holy Spirit. These seem to be, these seem to be the first deacons. Not everyone believes these were the first deacons. Uh, I know John MacArthur doesn't. I'm sure other people don't as well, but we see the solution as being appointing deacons and they come in and they sort out the issues. So Stephen is one of the deacons. And if you go to chapter 7, we get um, his speech, right? Stephen is one of the deacons. You have his speech. He gives a speech where he's basically doing school of the Bible, right? He gives an overview, a history of Israel to the Jews. But the point of the speech is actually to show that God has been with his people all the time without the temple. God doesn't need the temple. Jesus, in his, earth, in his earthly ministry, he attacked the Jewish system of worship and the Jews resented, it for, resented him for it. And that is one of the reasons that he was crucified. In this passage, Stephen does the same thing and then, and then they stone him to death for it. So there's many similarities between Jesus and Stephen. Stephen is the first martyr and he's following in the footsteps of Christ. He's speaking against the temple. Jesus did the same thing. Both Stephen and Jesus ask the Father to forgive them for they don't know what they are doing. Jesus on the cross commits his spirit to the Father. Stephen looks up and he sees the heavens open and he sees the Lord Jesus standing waiting for him. It's an amazing account. It's amazing how Stephen's death is described. This is not a death where, you know, you look cool dying, you know, with explosions going off in the background. This is not an aesthetically pleasing death. This is being stoned to death, right? The rocks are breaking your nose, they are fracturing your, your skull, they're shattering your jawline. It's not a heroic, heroic cool-looking death. It is a violent and bloody and, and hard to look at. And yet the Bible says, and Stephen fell asleep, right? Verse 60 uh, of chapter 7 says, and falling, and falling to his knees, he cried out with, the Lord, with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. 
And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This guy, this guy's face has been smashed up and his body's being pummeled. And yet the Lord says he fell asleep. That is because he went instantly into glory, right? He is with the Lord. So then we get to chapter eight and Saul ravages the church. So remember Matthew 28, there's a great commission. And even in the start of Acts, right? The Lord says, spread, spread the gospel, right? Uh, starting off in Jerusalem and go out into the ends of the world. But then the disciples get comfortable. They get comfortable in Jerusalem. They don't fulfill the Great Commission. They don't go out. So what does the Lord do? He sends persecution. Since you don't want to go out, I will force you to go out. I will scatter you. And so he raises up a Saul who persecutes the church. And everyone starts running now. Verse 4 says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So the word preaching in this verse isn't the normal word for preaching. It almost means gossiping. Right, so they went about gossiping the gospel, all the people. It's really it's a really cool picture of how we should be as believers, constantly gossiping the word, right? Hey, have you heard about Christ? Have you heard this, 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 this? Right? Constantly speaking to all men everywhere. And so they get to Samaria and they scatter, they get to Samaria, and Philip preaches there. Quite a few people get saved and they are baptized. And Samaria was a significant place. The, Samar the Samaritans were from, if you remember when we looked at the Old Testament, the Samaritans were from the northern kingdom. So remember, Israel had been split into north and south. The Assyrians invaded in 722 BC. The Assyrians then intermarried with the Samaritans. And so the Jewish people saw Samaritans as half-breeds, as, as impure. They were despised and rejected. Jews wouldn't even walk through Samaria. They would try to avoid it at all costs. If they did have to walk through it, they would go through it as quickly as possible and then they get to the other side and then they wipe the dirt off their feet. But here, the gospel is coming to Samaria. People are believing and being baptized. So verse 14 says, Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Isn't that strange? They believe and are baptized, but they don't yet have the Holy Spirit. So that the apostles have to come down from Jerusalem and pray for them and then they get the Holy Spirit. So even from this passage, can you see how people get the idea of a second baptism and why they argue for it? Because can you see how... There were people who were saved and got baptized, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit. So we need to pray that people get the Holy Spirit, it seems. And some churches will argue that the evidence that you have the Holy Spirit is that you speak in tongues. Right? Well, firstly, there's no mention of speaking in tongues here, so you cannot make that law. Secondly, Paul will see this uh, when uh, Paul will see that when we look when we look at Corinthians, and he will ask a rhetorical question. He'll say, are all apostles? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. So churches who hold that view are twice over wrong. They are doubly wrong. Right? You don't get that from scripture. So this is an account of people being baptized by the Holy Spirit, which seems to support the idea of a second baptism. Overall, like I mentioned earlier, there are four accounts in this book of, being, of people being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Um, chapter 2, chapter 8, chapter 10, and chapter 19, right? So chapter 2, so keep this in mind, chapter 2 is Pentecost, chapter 8 is what we've just seen in Samaria, right? We'll come back to this at the end um, and explain what's going on when we get to chapter 19. Uh, if I don't, please remind me, but I probably won't. Okay, so then please turn to chapter 9. So we get to chapter 9. And when it comes to the Apostle Peter, did he have any major sin issues? When you think of the Apostle Peter, what is the one thing you know he was rebuked for? It was his racism. He was a racist. They are at a conference when the incident happens. Paul points it out and confronts him. He sees Peter sitting and eating with the Gentiles. And then the Judaizers show up for the conference. And they look at Peter like, what are you doing? Why are you sitting with the Gentiles and eating with them? And then Peter gets up and he moves to their table. Paul sees this and is like, what are you doing? What's wrong with you? You know, Peter has that problem. And 
do you know what Peter's father's name was? It was Jonah. I think it's mentioned um, in the Gospels that he's son of something, something Jonah, right? And uh, not that it has like any direct implications, but I mean, uh, it, it brings to mind Jonah, as in from the book of Jonah. And did Jonah, Old Testament Jonah, did he have any issues? He did. His was also racism. So it's like Peter, the son of Jonah, as if to say Peter in the character of Jonah. Peter had issues with other nations. He didn't like them. Same way that Jonah had a problem with other nations. Remember when Jonah fled from the presence of God? He went to a city called Joppa. Right? Now look at verse 36 of chapter 9. Verse 36 says, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. And verse 42 and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he, speaking of Peter, he stayed, and he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. So Simon there is Peter. Where did Peter go? He went to Joppa. Peter then starts to have uh, these visions of a blanket coming down with unclean animals. And the Lord says, take and eat. How many times does he have this vision? It's three times. How many times, uh, how many days was Jonah in the belly of the whale? It was three. So there's all these little links to Jonah because Peter has to learn the same lesson that Jonah did. And that lesson with the visions, isn't that the lesson with the visions, isn't that we can now eat bacon. But on the side note, praise the Lord because we can now eat bacon. The lesson to be learned is that Gentiles who were the unclean animals are now part of the kingdom. That's what Peter finally learned, right? So um, we get to chapter 10. In chapter 10, we encounter a Gentile. So this, this time it's a proper Gentile, not a half, half Gentile like a Samaritan. Peter goes to him and he starts to preach. And he doesn't even finish before the Holy Spirit comes upon him. And then Peter will say, uh, Peter will actually say in chapter 11, verse 15, he says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remember the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Right? And it's like, you're only getting this now, Peter. Right? What did Jesus say to you in Matthew 28? He said, go out to all the nations. But even though it's easy to, to point fingers at Peter, we all have our blind spot. Right? We all have our prejudices with other people, with other nations, other ethnicities. And in this day and age with other genders, um, well, not other genders, but the other gender. There's only two, just so we are clear and established on that. Right? Um, no pronouns allowed here, guys. Sorry. So we get to chapter 13. And we have Paul. Paul is converted. And his testimony is repeated three or four times in the book of Acts. I think it can be, it's a legitimate way of evangelizing. Using your own testimony. Especially in the postmodern world we live in. Right? We are a very subjective people. All about your experience, my experience. So the positive side to that is that people are, will, are willing to listen to your experiences as opposed to just propositional statements. Paul's conversion story, he's persecuting the church. One day he is on Damascus Road and the Lord meets him there. He's, Paul is the last person to see the resurrected Christ and that's what Paul will tell us. And he needed to see the resurrected Christ because that was one of the requirements for an apostle. So today, if someone comes up to you and says they are an apostle, ask them if they have seen the resurrected Christ. If they say yes, run. Run away. If not, they cannot be an apostle. And then you still should still run. Run away from them. Um, and so up to this point, Peter has been preeminent in Acts, and now Paul will begin to appear more and more and more. Paul and Barnabas are sent by the Holy Spirit from Antioch, and they go off to plant churches. And you will see that when Paul goes to plant a church, he never goes alone, right? The disciples never work alone. Uh, even us at, at Heritage, our, at our church, our church planting model 
is impacted by what by what we see in acts right in scripture you never see one elder it's not ideal it's always a plurality a number of elders at least two so paul gets to the another antioch this is the antioch in pisidia and paul's method of evangelization would be to come into a city so he goes to a city and then he looks for the synagogue right and there were synagogues in most cities during that time. They were basically everywhere. And remember that Paul was a rabbi. He was trained by a man named Gamaliel. Gamaliel. And people would often say, because he's a rabbi, do you have anything to say to us? A word of exhortation. You know, preach for us. Since Paul was a rabbi. And then he would get up and he would preach. Right? And it's cool that we have some of Paul's sermons recorded because... It is helpful to see how Paul changed his sermons depending on the audience, depending on the context. So when he's speaking to the Jews, it's a sermon full of Bible, right? He's preaching directly from the Old Testament. You see him do expository preaching, right? He goes verse by verse, as said this prophet, as said that prophet, as said Moses, right? Because the Jews know their Bible. So he can argue from scripture that Jesus is the Messiah, right? That's one thing that you see how he evangelizes to the Jews. Um, and so that's why he would always start at the synagogues because it's, it's, it's low-hanging fruit, right? It's, it's an easy audience. And then they end up in Lystra. They go around, they go to Lystra. This is in chapter 14. If you go to chapter 14 here, they heal someone and the people start to think that they are gods, the Greek gods. They think that Barnabas is Zeus and they think that Paul is Hermes. So they start to worship them. Verse 14 says, but when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness for he did good. By giving you rains from heavens and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So Paul is with the Gentile audience now, but see how he's preaching to them. Right? Notice how he doesn't appeal to scriptures. He appeals to general revelation. He'll do this again in chapter 17. He, deal, he deals with creation and with God being the creator. Here he's saying, God gave you food. He gave you flavors to enjoy the food. He sends the rain. That is the gracious goodness of God, right? He doesn't quote any Bible verses because it will be meaningless to them. So here we have two examples of apostolic preaching. The whole issue of contextualization is being shown to us by the apostles as an example of how we are to do it. It's important that when you share the gospel, when you preach good news, understand the context. Make sure the people would understand by what, what you mean by what you say. Right? We, don't live, we don't live in a society where people know their Bible. Because of that, our context today is more a Acts chapter 14 7, uh, and 17 context instead of an Acts chapter 13 one. Right? Don't, so don't freak out when what is being preached doesn't have that much Bible, if you know what I mean. Right? Freak out and lose your mind if it is not biblical truth. Right? If it is not biblical, then it is wrong. And... In doing so, in contextualizing, be wary of compromising because some people over-contextualize to the culture. So when the culture says homosexuality is okay, then they want to compromise, right? They don't want to offend because being offensive is basically blasphemy uh, against the gods of this age that we are living in, right? And that shouldn't be the case. That is a separate thing. That is wrong. We do not compromise on biblical truth. But we are for speaking biblical truth and connecting with the culture, right? Even Paul, Paul goes to the Greeks and he won't uh, quote scriptures to them. He will quote the Greek philosophers, right? He will, he will quote their own, so to speak, the prophets of the age, the prophets of the culture, right? And he uses them to communicate gospel truths. He uses it to get people saved, right? How are men and women saved? It is through the foolishness of preaching that people are saved. And so one thing, one thing that we can take away from this is that we must expect and we should definitely hope to see unsaved people in the church. 
That way we can reach out to them. Otherwise, they will not be saved through the foolishness of preaching, right? Um, okay, let's go to chapter 19. So in chapter 19, Paul is in Ephesus. As you read through Acts, you will see, it's really cool because you will see the birth of the churches that we will see later in letters being written to, right? Like the Philippians, you'll see the Philippians, you'll see the uh, Ephesians, right? And this chapter is the final description of baptism in the Holy Spirit. So chapter 19, verse 2 says... chapter 19 verse 2 and he said to them did you receive the holy spirit when you believed and they said no we have not we have not even heard that there is a holy spirit and he said into what were you baptized they said into john's baptism and paul said john baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him that is jesus on hearing this they were baptized in the name of the lord jesus and when paul had laid his hands on them the holy spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So here we have an interesting group of people. They are in Ephesus, which is outside of the land of Israel. These are Jews who, who probably came to Israel many years earlier, maybe 15, 20 years before. And it was during the time of John the Baptist. And they hear him preaching, right? They hear, and what did John the Baptist preach? Remember, he asked, do you want to be do you want a baptism of repentance? And remember, that is what we saw in the gospel. John the Baptist was in the wilderness and he was getting people baptized, right? John asked, do you want a baptism of repentance? Yes, that is what we want. We are Jews who want to follow the Lord and we are waiting for the Messiah. And they got baptized by John and then they went back home to Ephesus. They never hear of Jesus and Pentecost. And so when Paul encounters them here, he says to them, have you been baptized by the Holy Spirit? No, we didn't. We didn't even know there was such a thing as a Holy Spirit. So what were you baptized in? John's baptism. And so Paul fills them in, brings them up to speed with what happened, and they get baptized with the Holy Spirit. Right. So this is what is going on. And uh, it's a, there's an author named Sinclair Ferguson. He has a very helpful analogy on it. Right. He's, he wrote a book on the Holy Spirit. And he says, imagine there is a water tower. It's a reservoir. And there is a pipe coming out and it goes into each house in a community. At Pentecost, the tap is opened. And that is the language used of the Holy Spirit, right? It's like water. The Holy Spirit is being poured out, being filled up. The first outpouring is on the Jews in Jerusalem, right? Um, and then after that, it's the Samaritans and then the Gentiles. And finally, we get to chapter 19. And it's the Old Testament believers. Um, it's the Old Testament believers, right? In each of these chapters, what is happening is it is a display of the transitional period in which people are being moved from the Old Covenant to the New. Especially here in chapter 19. Chapter 19 is where you see it most clearly. These are really Old Testament believers they still believe in the Messiah who was promised to come. Now they are being brought up to speed and they receive the Holy Spirit. These other groups in the other chapters that we, that, uh, that we, that we see, along, along these other groups, they were being brought up into the new covenant. Right? They are also showing that uh, Samaritans and Gentiles are being included in the people of God. Remember, the same thing happened with the disciples. They were Old Testament believers. And then when they received the Holy Spirit and were moved into the new covenant, right? Then the Holy Spirit comes upon them and it basically shifts them there. So now the Holy Spirit is coming upon the, these believers here. And it means that the same, the same new covenant fullness and power of the Holy Spirit that the, the disciples received is being applied to them, right? Once they are filled up, once everyone is moved from the old covenant to the new, from that point onward, you are born into the new covenant, right? The reservoir is being poured out and all the pipes are filled. So you can't be an Old Testament believer anymore. So notice that is what's happening in all these chapters, chapters 2, chapter 8, chapter 10, chapter 19. These are all old covenant believers being moved to the new, right? So that there is no longer such a thing as an old covenant believer. Because now, 
if you actually hold to the old covenant, you are denying the Messiah. You are an antichrist. So that is why you have these different accounts. They're showing us this movement to bring everyone up to speed, as well as this movement showing us the spread of the gospel to the different uh, geographical locations and different ethnic groups, right? Because notice the spread. The spread is from the Jews and then to the Samaritans and then the Gentiles and then other Old Testament believers further and further away from Jerusalem, right? So that is what the book of Acts is giving us. It is not giving us the need for Christians to have second baptisms. You are already born into the new covenant. You don't have to be transitioned into it. People, like in in Samaria, their repentance and baptism, in a sense, was an Old Testament one, right? Because they were baptized by John the Baptist. But then they get the new covenant experience. And when we get to 1 Corinthians, we will see how the apostolic teaching is that you have all been baptized into one spirit by one spirit. So that now conversion is baptism by the Holy Spirit, right? We don't need another baptism. We were not born, born into the old covenant, right? You and I, because um, think, think, think to John the Baptist, right? These, there were believers who hold to Christ, but the Holy Spirit has not yet come. So they were baptized. So when the Spirit, Holy Spirit does come, they need to receive that. And so that is the quote-unquote second baptism that is going on, right? So you and I, we don't need to have a second baptism because when we are converted, we already have that, right? Um, our desire now, what we, what we should do more and more is to desire to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. So be praying for that to live more and more under the control of God's Spirit. So these things like uh, tongues and second baptism, look, if you grow up in that tradition, these are very, very real things. They are real experiences that people have, emotional experiences. And you cannot deny that someone has, has experienced something. But remember that experience is not ultimate. Right? We want to judge everything by God's word. It can be a painful journey to begin to examine your experiences by scripture. To say, hold on, hold on a minute. I really experienced something. But more important than that, more important than my experience is what God's word says. And so we will deal more with uh, tongues and spiritual gifts when we get to Paul's letter to the Corinthians. But I hope you see that the tongues here were real languages, right? Second baptism was not a normative thing. It was describing the expansion of the movement of the Holy Spirit. And then, okay, we only have a few minutes left. So quickly summarizing what happens in the rest of the book. Uh, Paul goes on more missionary journeys and then he gets into trouble with the Jews, but the Jews can't do anything. They can't touch Paul because he's a Roman citizen. And so he's able to plead his case before the Caesar. Eventually, Paul ends up in Rome. And as I mentioned, Paul would go to the synagogues because he had an easy entrance there since he was a rabbi. And then what would happen is they would reject him. Few people would believe, but most of, most, mostly they would reject him. And then he goes next door to the Gentiles. He would say to the Jews, I'm done with you. I'm through. I'm going to the Gentiles. And the, and the Gentiles would receive him gladly. And you will see that play out in the last few chapters of this book. So if you go to the last chapter, chapter 28 of Acts, chapter 28 and verse 23. So verse 23 says, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God. So even though the word itself isn't always used, what they are doing in Acts is testifying about the kingdom of God. And when you get to the epistles, um, even then, you know, the word kingdom of God isn't being used that much. We saw kingdom of God being used a lot in the Gospels. But even though the word isn't used, that is the main focus. That is the central idea, right? Everything that they are teaching is about the kingdom of God. Everything. And that's why verse 23 says that they are testifying to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets. And verse 24 says, And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed before Paul and made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears, and with their ears they can barely hear, 
and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Verse 28, therefore, let it be known to you that the salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Okay, so the book of Acts ends in a proclaiming the kingdom of God without hindrance. There's a group called Acts 29, right? Uh, you should check them out. Like it's just Acts 29, Google that. Um, but if you know, if you have your Bible open, you'll see that there is no chapter 29 of Acts. But what they are saying is that the period that you and I live in now is Acts 29 because it is a church going out by the Holy Spirit and expanding the kingdom of God. As I said earlier, a better name for this book is the Acts of the Lord Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. Because even today, the Lord is working through his people, through you and I, through his Holy Spirit, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. So the kingdom will grow and expand. And it's important for us to keep that focus, that missional focus, seeing Jew and Gentile being saved. Okay, our time is up. So are there... Um, any questions, uh, any thoughts? Uh, it, it's 8 o'clock. If you do need to hop off, please uh, don't feel bad. Uh, but if you want to stay behind and, and ask any questions, please feel free. Hi, Tara. Hi. Hello. Um, I have two questions, right? Okay. So, the first one is, um, I think you said something in the beginning, or rather you said it actually throughout your books that Christ was at work through the Holy Spirit, and you said the Holy Spirit a lot. Okay, so just just to remind me, your first question is: Is there a difference between in the tri is in the it, Trinity? Yes, is it like are they separate in role or being? Like, isn't it like one God but now different? I don't know. I don't know if I'm asking it correctly. Mm. Okay, yeah, I think I think I get what you mean. So, yeah, the the doctrine of the Trinity is it's one God, right? Three persons. Right, three separate, distinct persons, um, each equally God. Um, each, uh, you know, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God, and so, <clears throat> yeah, I guess you, you can say it's the the difference is just in in role, right? But um, uh, because you know, even within the Trinity, they 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 relate to each other differently, right? The Son submits to the Father. And the Spirit submits to both the Father and the Son. The role of the Holy Spirit, the main role of the, the Holy Spirit is to proclaim Christ, right? Is to point to Christ, essentially, right? And then Christ is the one who, for example, is the inter... What's the word? Intermediary? Inter, in, he's, he's the one... He, the Son is the one who came and died for us, right? And the Father is the one who... Um, who's i mean all god is sovereign but you know the father's the one who for example who calls and who has given the sheep to the son so throughout scripture you will see that these definite examples of different roles of uh, the trinity of uh, the godhead you know the spirit does this um the the father does this the son does this so yeah it's but one god right three persons even i wouldn't even say three beings because but then it's becoming like very technical um but yeah i hope i hope that answers that first question 
right? Yeah, so, yeah, even, I mean, Christ left us with his Holy Spirit, who is the helper, right? So God works through his Holy Spirit. If you think back to Genesis in creation, um, um, it was the Holy Spirit that was hovering over the, the, the world, right? Before it was formed and whatever, and he brought about order and chaos, order from chaos. So, yeah, and then your second question. Um, okay, and then Warren is adding in the comment section that they are coexistent and co-eternal all working together to bring about redemption and salvation to those whom the Father has elected, the Son has pardoned for, and the Holy Spirit sanctifies continually, 100%. And then your second question, you were asking, so um, I don't really get the, the question, or are you just commenting? You're saying that uh, what you see in chapter 2 supports what you see, like, especially in charismatic, what charismatic churches, what happens at altar core. Can you just clarify that again, sorry? Just so I get your... Well, in a lot of Like I said, like to get saved, you need to come to the front and declare that the okay. that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, right? So when you say, well, when we read in Acts two that people got saved, that's the chapter that they use when they say, just come into the altar. So that's my question. Like, doesn't now it add to the fact? Is, is that the right way to think about it? That that's how you get saved, just by coming to the altar and declaring that Jesus is your Lord and Savior. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. Um, I, I don't think so. No, and because the so going back to my initial point of remember Acts is describing what had happened, right? So if we want to get the clear teaching on how people are saved, right, we can go to the epistles, even the gospels. You know, uh, where Jesus teaches clearly how people are saved. Um, it is through faith and repentance, right? Um. The gospel is people are saved through firstly the gospel being proclaimed and people repenting of their sins and putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Right? You don't have to go up to an altar to do that. You don't have to sit. You don't have to be anywhere. You just have to do um, those things. You have to be repent. You have to repent. Right? You have to uh, understand your sin. Look, I'm a sinner. I'm a fallen man. I've sinned against the holy God, and so how can I be right with God? Right, Jesus Christ has provided a way because He has died for my sins, and so I need to trust in His atonement. I need to have put my faith and trust in Him and His works for salvation. Right. So what I mean, like what you see here, and so I'm 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 just going through uh, chapter twenty-two because I mean chapter two um, because if if you even like notice, right, Peter's Peter's preaching. And what do they say? They say in verse, uh, so look at verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, right? Peter's preaching all throughout. He's, he's explaining basically, you know, um, he's, got, he's, he's giving a, an account of uh, what had happened to Christ. And then he's, he's showing them that they're guilty, that they have sinned, right? And what is their response? Verse 37, now they heard this and they were cut to the heart. And what did they say? What shall we do to be saved? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? So, um, even there, it's, it's, it's not, you don't see, I, I get the idea where it comes from, where like the whole altar call thing, but that is not the description of how you get salvation, right? Like, you don't have to be in a church building and come forward somewhere and say something in front of people. No, that's, that's not how um, salvation comes about. So, uh, I wouldn't, yeah, I, I would... Uh, this is just a, that's an example of people using acts to create rules to add things that aren't taught necessarily in scripture. So, yeah. I hope that answers your question. Thanks, uh, Hi, Sabella.
but not two beans. Because yeah, bean yeah. is who you are. Did I say three beans? I, I just said, I think, yeah. I hope I, yeah, just clarified it, not one bean. Yeah, so I'm yeah. with you there, yeah. Yeah, but uh, I've got a bunch of people here, man. <laughs> uh, 